You are listening to the Missions History Podcast, brought to you by the International Mission Board, where we remember the past to inspire the future. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. Welcome to Missions History Podcast. I'm David Brady, and my co-host is Scott Peterson. On the last episode, we began um, discussing 10 turning points in the history of Southern Baptist Missions. And we got through the first five, and uh, in this episode, we hope to go through the second five. That's right. And David, we left off talking about uh, the Foreign Mission Board's refusal to enter into the union movement of combining our efforts uh, completely with many other denominations around the world. Um, But that happened just post-World War I. There was another major crisis on the horizon that was going to affect uh, North America, the United States, and the Western world in a major way. And many of us have heard our grandparents talk about that or our parents talk about that. And that was the Great uh, Depression. Yeah. And Scott, just to kind of uh, set the stage, um, last time, um, <clears throat> the reason I think we we think this is so important, we're doing a lot of individual people individual mission stations. But on the lead up to our 175th anniversary, if you're a listener to this podcast, we would love for you to have kind of a broad strokes outline of where people fit that as we're talking to different folks and about different um, people. Um, We looked at the founding in 1845, how that was a continuation of the one sacred effort of Baptists that had been started in 1814 uh, with Luther Rice and Adoniram Judson. We talked about the first 16 years being that foundation, then the Civil War almost stopping it. But the Civil War became that defining moment that after it, we decided we are in this. This is something that needs to continue. And so the really the foreign missions continued. The third and probably the maybe the most significant turning point was in the 1870s, the explosion of women and their involvement in the missionary movement. And then we talked about at the beginning of the 20th century, there was slow but sure expansion, but more than expansion, there was diversification of types of ministry. Pretty much people had been general evangelist, maybe a school teacher, uh, but these other ministries of uh, medical missions, printing, um, et cetera, began to to multiply. We see missionaries beginning to use the skills and talents that God has given them in a variety of ways of ministry on the field. That's right. And then, as you mentioned, we we ended uh, the first episode talking about around 1920, the refusal of the Foreign Mission Board and of Southern Baptists to enter into these uh, organic union, these official union movements. That's right. And, you know, uh, throughout our history, support, financial support of the efforts was a, is a recurring theme. And we've talked about the Civil War and the debt that, in, that when was incurred during that time. And afterward, we talked about Willingham during that time of expansion, bringing us out of debt, but us slowly slipping back into that. But when the Great Depression hit, that was a major, major problem for us. Major problem. Um, starting in, a, you know, the lead up to 1920, uh, there was this idea, uh, you know, people could see that we were really on the rise. So they had this uh, campaign known as the 75 million campaign. And the Foreign Mission Board was to get a big chunk of that. 
So in one of these instances of counting your chickens before your eggs hatch, um, early receipts were really high. And so Southern Baptists, you know, said, hey, we got to reach the world. So they really sent out a lot of missionaries. So they were extended more than they had been prior to the 75 million campaign. But by 1925, when the, the campaign was concluding, it had dropped significantly short, yet we had increased our expenditures um, way above 10 years prior. So we were further extended and the money not only was less, but by 1929 with the start, stock market crash and then all throughout the 30s, there was a massive drop in actual receipts as the Great Depression began to spread. This got so bad, Scott, um, Franklin Love dies in this myth. Uh, oh, one other thing I have to say, there was both at the Home Mission Board during this time in the late 20s and at the Foreign Mission Board, there was a major embezzlement. That's right. Yeah. And they, and they happened very close. Very ba- close. Back to back. Very close. Um, the one at the Home Mission Board was more money but they both were really hard because every penny mattered and it was also sort of a lack of trust that kind of happened. But um, uh, Franklin Love dies. Um, they have a hard time finding a successor. They take one of the uh, associates on staff, um, uh, uh, T. Ray Bronson, who's a great guy, but he just, it was a hard time. You needed a, a, just a really uh, exceptional leader. And he was he was much more of a, an educator. He'd done a lot in educational materials. He was loved by the missionaries, but he even knew he was probably not the guy. Yeah. And T.B. Ray, he wrote a lot of works that we tell us about our history. And so we don't want to sell him short at all because of the way he provided information for us on our history and the work at that time. And that was really his heart. He really was uh, involved in missions education, of getting the word out, of mobilizing and motivating people, but probably not the one to bring us out of debt. Yeah. And the truth is, taking over the Foreign Mission Board at this time, nobody wanted to accept. You ought to, you're reading through all what happened during these years when they were trying to find a, a new, this is when the term changes to executive secretary. Nobody wanted the job. I mean, they wanted George W. Truett. They thought he'd be great. I mean, you know, he was a big name. He loved missions, great supporter. He wouldn't take it. A lot of people turned it down. It had gotten so bad, Scott, that we were $1.2 million in debt. That was a lot of money then. It was a lot of money. In God's providence, he brought a man who'd been a pastor. He'd been the state exec uh, in North Carolina. Uh, he had just moved to working uh, more at a broader denominational level in Nashville, uh, and uh, this was Charles Madry, and he was he was God's gift during this time, uh, a man with a keen business sense. Um, he went into the bank uh, that was holding the loan on the Foreign Mission Board debt, and basically these guys at the bank they were saying we're calling in everything. I mean, they were they were that upset about how far we'd gotten into debt. And Charles Madre, he just was so calm. And he went into that meeting and he said, you know, we've been doing business with you since 1845. You've never lost a cent on us. You've got, and at that point, how many ever millions of Southern Baptists are behind this effort. If you call in this loan, you will 
ruin this as an organization. So the Foreign Mission Board will be gone and you will not get a penny. If you give us another chance, if you extend this loan and you lower the payments that we have to make, you will not only make back this money, but you will make all the interest as well. That's right. And they somehow, those men in that room, those businessmen, they sensed this was a man who was calm, who had a just a commanding presence about him. And they were like, we'll do it. And they extended this loan. It was really pretty much throughout Madry's all of the 30s. We were just digging out of this hole into the early 40s. We're just digging out of this hole. Um, there were a lot of things that Madry did. He actually instituted the retirement age. Um, that was one way actually to get some folks off of the list of, of payment of, of uh, salaries. Um, we had missionaries that were stranded here in the U.S. Uh, we talked about the Powells uh, last season. They were here, couldn't go back. Right. Uh, there were a lot of situations like this. We actually got down to where we were appointing no new missionaries for a period of years. This period of the Great Depression was the greatest financial challenge to that point that we'd ever faced. And many of the missionaries that we know today who came on and took on leadership roles in the Foreign Mission Board and now the International Mission Board, when we read their correspondence, they served under Charles Madry, because a lot, they mention uh, Dr. Madry, they reference him, a lot of the letters are written to him, and he leads us through uh, the Second World War as well. That's right. He leads us through the Second World War. Um, there are gradual expansions into various countries. We're seeing s small uh, uh, movements in that uh, time frame, but Pretty much the the thing that was happening during the Madre was trying to get out of debt. That's right. And it almost to the very end of his 11 years or whatever, something like that, um, that was the kind of the final capstone. We're right. out of debt. Um, they entered new countries like Colombia in the early 40s. But Madre had, was already an older man when he came into this position. He had served many, many years as a pastor, denominational exec, but he knew they needed a younger man with a with a, a vision. And this was really a big turning point. He actually handpicked. Now it had to go through committees, but he sure. said, I know who my successor needs right. to be. And curiously, he asked uh, this man um, uh, who was a missionary, our first missionary to, to become be, that's right. um, the, the executive secretary. Um, he asked him, to do this, and this was uh, Millage there in Rankin. Madry's work in leading us out of debt set the stage for that next turning point, as well as him seeing and identifying the person who would be able to take us that next stage, that ne next level. And that was developing that vision for advance, setting the stage for advance. And that's our next turning point. Yeah, you know, you could really, and the reason I like this turning point thing is because it crosses multiple presidencies. Right. But so basically you could say from 1945, basically to 1979, 1980, this is this period of the vision and implementation of advance. Uh, advance was the vision of Theron Rankin. Uh, he was a China missionary, worked in South China, married to an MK um, from China. Uh, he was actually taught at Graves Theological Seminary, uh, um, named in honor of, of Roswell Graves. Uh, just a, a, a keen thinker. 
because one of the things we've always been bad at in missions is when a mission matures is handing the reins to national leadership. We've done that poorly in Brazil. We did that poorly in China. Um, but Theron Rankin was really an advocate for Chinese uh, taking control, Chinese Baptists taking control of their own seminary and those sorts of things. So he was a critical thinker. He was just given this incredible vision that uh, after the war, Southern Baptists were going to need to reach the world, that they had more resources, the world was a big place, and and so his vision was called Advance. And he was a good administrator. He had led what was the largest missions in China and in the, and in um, Asia. Yeah, and you know, a couple of things happened on this vision of Advance, which was we need, essentially, we need to go to more places, reach more people with more money and more missionaries. You know, that was right. sort of the, the big thrust. But really one of the things that enabled this sort of scattering of missionaries was in 1949, the closing of our work in China. This was a huge thing because the amount of money and people and institutions that we were maintaining in China meant we really couldn't go anywhere else. But the communist control of China drove our missionaries out, closing of the door, the tragedy of Bill Wallace and what happened right. there and others. And those missionaries literally went to many different countries. And we see that when we track their careers. That's exactly right. They formally served in China. They went yep. to Taiwan. They went to Indonesia. That's right. um, Philippines. The Philippines. At places like in the Philippines and Indonesia, we had not previously been. Yeah, absolutely. So in God's providence, you know, you think about Acts 1-8, that they're waiting uh, there until they're clothed with power from on high, and that you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the utmost parts of the earth. That doesn't happen until Acts 8-1. Flip the numbers, and that is what caused them was not the commission of Christ. It was the persecution that scattered them. In the same way, the closing of the door in China actually was the first major step in the redeployment of our forces, particularly throughout other countries in Asia. And we, like many other missions agencies, saw an influx of missionaries after World War II. And I, I've always thought that uh, many of the soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines who had served around the world had their eyes open to the need around the world. And we do see a lot of former servicemen and women applying for mission service post-World War II. Scott, that is exactly right. My, my dad is that generation. Uh, he didn't serve in World War II. He served the year after World War II right. um, and went to Panama. His eyes were, he'd already had a missions call, but that solidified it in his mind. And he and my mom are uh, just uh, two of the really thousands of new missionary recruits. Going with that, though, the the 1950s Southern Baptists are in a massive growth spurt. Um, our churches are growing. Um, Southern Baptists are having lots of kids. I mean, we're the churches are really big, booming. More people, more money. And I also want to say, I think you know 
you could have more people, more money, and it wouldn't translate into missions. But the reason it translated into missions is because to be a Southern Baptist was to be in a missionary saturated environment from being in a sunbeam, the youngest little kids to RAs and GAs and brotherhood and, and WMU, you name it. Essentially the entire structure of a Southern Baptist church was one big missionary unit. And, you know, talking about the missions education programs that were uh, in Southern Baptist churches, particularly at that day, is a key feature. You don't find that in other denominations, at least not in the same to the same extent, but repeatedly in our interviews and our talks with former missionaries, we they they talk about their involvement in GAs or RAs and the impact that that had on their life and as they learned about missions and moving forward in that. But you know, when we think about advance, Theron Rankin's not the leader that normally comes to mind. Normally, it's Baker James Coffin. You know, and I think this theme has happened over and over again, that we have a leader that has a vision, but it's his successor that actually fulfills that vision. Baker James Coffin did not have a new vision. He maintained the vision of advance, but he fulfilled the mission. That's right. Uh, during this time, we were in like 30 countries when, oh, by the way, um, what happened with Theron Rankin is he was serving uh, and he contracted leukemia and was dead in weeks. I mean, it was a real shock. Um, but Baker James Cawthon, the second missionary uh, executive and, and executive uh I think they even changed the name under him. I can't remember what they call it. It's not till Keith Parks it becomes president, president. but it's it, something different uh, at this point. Um, he uh, is also a missionary to China, uh, had been the sort of area regional leader for that, that area of, of the world, Asia. But he comes in and he starts there in the 50s. He goes to 1979. He's actually the longest serving of our presidents at 26 years, something like that. And it is during this time when he starts, we were like at 30 countries and we're almost at a hundred when, so that's like 70 countries right. that we enter. We have a small budget and, uh, you know, millions of dollars. And then by the time he goes in, it's tens of millions of dollars. It is just a massive period of growth. And like you said, missions, volunteers, and he was a fabulous, fabulous preacher, probably, you know, one of the greatest that we've had. And, and his wife's missions pedigree was very deep and lasting. She was a missionary kid. Now we would call the third culture kid, the son of Wiley Glass, so Eloise Glass Coffin. That's exactly right. And we mentioned um, uh, in our last episode, we mentioned a woman named Jessie Pettigrew, who was the first nurse um, when Wiley's wife, um, uh, Eloise's mother, mother. died. Um, he married Jesse That's right. and Jesse raised the kids. So she was really sort of a, a second mother uh, to Eloise. So deep missionary pedigree. That's exactly right. Um, uh, there in North China, the land of, of Lottie Moon. Um, but this this period was just really critical. Um, but part of the thing that happens, we're, we're expanding more people, more countries, but we also are continuing to increase our commitment institutions. That's right. Yeah. So you get into a hospital and you start and you're giving X amount, the hospital grows 
And it's very hard to get out of that. And so we, we have a massive amount of money going to a hospital or a massive amount of, money, amount of money going to a school. Uh, and, and it's hard to be able. And, and what happens is the more money you spend on institutions, the less money you have to send out new missionaries. And there was another feature of our work, too, where our organizational structure was focused on uh, national entities, on countries. And we began to lose sight in many cases of the distinctives of people living in those countries. You know, something that we don't really have here in the melting pot of the United States. I mean, we see it more and more now, but the uh, indigenous people groups that were there that weren't being reached and touched by the gospel, uh, because we were seeing the the numbers of of, of sometimes a single or, or two different groups responding to the gospel, and our efforts began to gravitate towards that. Uh, not to sell short that work, because God still worked in a great way during that time. Absolutely. And I think that um, you see in this period, though, still um, mentioning about the nations, a lot of those nations didn't even exist. They come into existence. That's right. I mean, Africa, these, like many of those countries, came in during the period of J- Baker James Cawthon's um, uh, time. Uh, my parents served in, they started in a country called British Guiana, and four years after, it became an independent fr- uh, nation called Guyana, from uh, independent from uh, Great Britain. The same thing was repeated later in Belize, uh, British colony, independent. So this was happening all over the world. So, yes, I think in this, uh, there was sort of a sense of going to a nation rather than to peoples. There was also a lot of traditional understanding. Um, You go and it worked. I mean, in a lot of places like where my parents, you go, you get a group of people, you build a physical building, um, you set up a structure with a, you know, like a Baptist church here, you get your WMU, you get your, you know, everything you have in place, just like carbon copies of churches in the South. Um, but what was happening is the world was changing. And, and also not only was the world changing, I mean, you think about the, 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 the USSR, I mean, you think about all of those, the nations that were involved in that. And we pretty much, because we had a very traditional view of how you go to a place, if you couldn't get a missionary visa, we just considered it you know, sorry, we, well, we can't help. And another reason why we looked at countries instead of the groups within the countries is because it was those countries, those nations that issued our permission and our That's papers exactly to be in them. exactly right. Yeah, exactly right, Scott. So um, uh, Baker James Cawthon, some things happen uh, in 1975 or six, somewhere in there. Uh, Southern Baptists come up with a sort of a, a missionary focus called Bold Bold Missions Thrust. Thrust. And the idea is we want every man and woman on earth by 2000 to have heard the gospel. And um, Baker James Cawthon, he's in the final years of his ministry. He's kind of, his health is beginning to decline. Um, Southern Baptists are, it's not that we have less money. It's that we're actually starting, churches start to spend the money on their own mission projects and sending their own this is the late seventies, early eighties is the explosion of volunteers going for a week, two weeks. And you know, those, those would be two, three, four thousand dollars that normally would have just gone in the offering plate right. now is being spent by that church on their individual. We see changes in communication and travel. It makes the world closer and nearer where people begin to want to get involved themselves 
in that kind of work. And that takes us to this eighth turning point of realizing, reorganizing, and redeploying to reach the unreached. And of course, we know in the evangelical world, in the missions world, there began to be a focus brought about by a number of different individuals uh, writing about hidden peoples, uh, unreached peoples. And so let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we've kind of set up the stage of where this is, that we're a, a very traditional missions organization. We are um, very highly organizational. I mean, we, we, we are sponsoring organizations, institutions rather. Um, and, and so this is kind of put a little bit of a stranglehold. And we, if we, we don't go to a place, we can't get a visa. So, um, you know, in Luzon World Congress for Evangelization, um, at that time, one of the things that Ralph Winter and others begin to talk about is this idea that there are hidden peoples, you know? I mean, I think about the town that um, I pastor in, you could say, hey, I'm reaching that town. But if you don't look carefully, you have a whole group of Spanish-speaking people that are living a parallel life to the English-speaking people. And you could say, I'm reaching, you know, your your um, your English-speaking people. But at the same in that same geography, you've got another group of, of Spanish-speaking people that if you're not targeting them and finding a way to reach them linguistically, culturally, um, you're, you're going to miss them. So all of this was that basically Baker James Cawthon um, retires. They're looking for a new leader. Uh, they eventually decide on Keith Parks. Uh, Keith Parks was a, a missionary to Indonesia. Uh, he had been back in the States working in mission support and doing some other things at the board. And he really was God's man for this time because he he was willing to listen and to say, I, I think this is one of the things I, I, I heard and think about him. The Baptists had adopted Bull Missions Thrust. Keith Parks is the first person who said, okay, how can we actually make this happen? Right. Not just, okay, we've got it on paper, but what would it take? And of course, uh, the, the research that's coming out, uh, in 85, he meets a guy named David Barrett, um, who is is helping him to realize that you may be in all these countries, but you're missing a lot of peoples. Right. Uh, and then there's also some strategies that start to come, say, hey, you can't go to a place, you can't live there, but what about being a non-residential missionary? I mean, that's a creative idea. You know, why don't you go to a place for two weeks on a tourist visa, three weeks, whatever you can? Um, and that was the beginning. What they found through the NRMs, through the non-residential missionary, is that when they went on these tourist visas, there were actually lots of ways that they could live on a longer-term basis and, in, those and in that country. And the work began to shift. So it was not just an American who was doing the evangelism and church planting, but a, a goal and a purpose to be a catalyst to work by the people themselves to reach people who would in turn reach other people. Absolutely. And, you know, there, there were so many factors happening in this period. As I mentioned, you have churches sending out mission teams, you know, short term. That was happening. I know from personal experience underneath our house in Belize, we could house between 20 to 30 people. And we always had that amount. And there were mission teams coming from the U.S. This was happening over and over again. Um, Baptists get involved in world hunger during this period. The, the famine in Ethiopia sort of awakened our consciousness to that. 
there are lots of things, but the defining movement, and this is why I think the turning point is such a great structure, is this idea of reaching the unreached, going to places that you can't go as a traditional missionary. This really spans both Keith Parks and Jerry Rankin. That's right. And you've you've gone into history that you and I have lived right. now. I remember when I first came to uh, the, at that time, the Foreign Mission Board, our annual reports that we were receiving from the field were mission-focused. They were primarily uh, for an entire country. But we, be, we also had, uh, with a subset of those reports that were focused on people groups, so that by 1997, when we became the International Mission Board right. and we restructured, reports began to be oriented towards a specific people group or a specific place. And that's how we continue to report now. That's right. And, and you know, though this is not the, the story that we're telling, we have to say that pretty much from uh, the beginning of the Keith Parks era, all through that era, that and, and really even the beginning years of Jerry Rankin, this is the period of the conservative resurgence. And sure. there is a lot of tension in this. And um, there um, just a major struggles going on with boards and who's appointed and where do people line up on this? So, you know, it, it, we're not going into that, but right. it, what we need to just say, this was really serious. And, and, um, a lot of missionaries and even missionary leaders would say, I'm a conservative myself, but I don't, I think we should have room for people that are more moderate or whatever. And so it was a, it was a tough time. What? was really a tumultuous time in our convention, and we see separation and division. What's amazing is that the work continues to grow and expand almost exponentially. Almost exponentially. And, you know, so after Keith Parks in this sort of uh, realizing, hey, we're not reaching the world, we're, tr we're doing this traditionally, we're too institutional, we got to reorganize. Really, the full redeployment happens under Jerry Rankin. That's right. And, um, We'd had some sort of experimental strategies like CSI, Cooperative Services International. But now organization-wide, uh, we're kind of moving away from more traditional missionary fields. So like countries that we've been in for a long time, and there are a lot of Baptist churches like Brazil or really the Americas in, in, in large part. And we're refocusing on what was uh, kind of called the 1040 window or world A. Right. And we're focusing on, on reaching those unreached peoples. This happens during this period, which is basically um, 1980 to 2010, a 30-year period it, it really remarkable. Some other things that happened that really needed to happen uh, early 2000s with Jerry Rankin, there had to be a clarification uh, of, of doctrinal position of missionaries. Really, it was possible to be a missionary and hold very divergent views from what most of your conservative Bible-believing Southern Baptist churches believe. That's right. And there needed to be some tightening on that. People think that's the first time that happened. It wasn't. It had actually happened under James Franklin Love back in 1920. So 80 years before the same thing had happened. Wow. Um, so uh, all of this was happening. Um, really, the the period of the set, I can think Jerry Rankin's like 17 years, something like that. Something like that. Yeah. It was pro one of the most prolific periods of really, I think, fulfilling things that were set in motion, the vision uh, that was set during the Parks era. Right.
Um, so all of that uh, kind of takes us to about 2010, and that's the, the end of our eighth point. Which um, takes us to our next one, which is limits and limitless. What yeah. do you mean by that, David? Well, limits and limitless. I think the thing that even at the sort of the end of, of the Jerry Rankin era was, again, it had happened sort of in the 70s as well, is we've got we really, when we have more missionaries than we've ever had, I mean, we're over 5,000, I yes, think. Yes, we had point. reached over 5,000. Over yeah. 5,000 missionaries. So people wanting to go, we're at the peak, we're reaching some of the hardest places, places we've never gone before. But at the very same time, mission finance is not keeping up. And so there's this gap. It's not the Southern Baptists don't care anymore. It's just they're not expanding on the giving like they always had been. So we have lots of people, but not enough funds. And the gap just keeps widening and widening and widening. So we hit a limit. Namely, we've got people that want to go. We just can't fund them. We began to cap the number of people we would appoint, the number of short-term uh, people that we would approve to go overseas. Yeah, I think um, current president, our new president, um, Dr. Chitwood, he was actually chairman of the board at this point. He says, uh, one of the things, I read an article he wrote saying that Jerry Rankin got up and said, hey, we're, we're going to expand this. And then he had to come up right after him and say, we don't have the money to expand this, you know? <laughs> and, and we actually have to draw down this was really, it's not just capping, but we're actually having to draw down. Um, this is the period where everybody doesn't know what to do. This has happened before in the Great Depression. We've got these people out there and we've we've actually increased our missions. We don't have the money to keep it up. So we are selling properties around the world, trying to keep up. So those are the limits. We've got the people. We just don't have the resources to send them. Uh, in that though, um, God uh, brought first Tom Elif and then uh, David Platt in this period of what I call limitless, which is saying we've got to rethink, not we've already kind of know we've got to be going to different people groups, but we've got to rethink how we get them there. Right. There got to be multiple strategies, multiple funding sources. And, and really, honestly, I would have to say, though, it'll take a while for us to assimilate what happened on this. The fact of when David Platt came on and realized here is the money we're taking in and here is the number of people that we're supporting. And there's a huge gap and it's just going to grow. And the viability of the organization is threatened. Um, one of the most significant turning points in all 174 years is what was known as the VRI, the Voluntary yeah, the vol Retirement. That's right. And along with that was a hand-raising opportunity yep. to, hand say, to say, maybe you're not eligible for that retirement offer, but you feel God's calling you uh, to go in a different direction. And, you know, we saw people who took advantage of those opportunities, but they didn't stop the work. The, uh, some of them stayed on the field they found another yes. funding source or they used their own funds to stay there. And so we didn't lose all of those people in that respect. Right. But we did see uh, where engagement ceased among some of the work that we're, we had. But unfortunately, we had to get on a better uh, financial footing. And it's not not the first time, as you said, that we've had to do something like this. It's, it's not the first time. And I, I think that what you see is that sort of out of the crisis, there's some new creativity, um, thinking how to, you know, we've, we have not just funded this monolithically. I mean, in the beginning, 
associations or state conventions sponsored a missionary. I mean, that was their missionary. They paid the funds. Um, We've done different things throughout time. And I think that probably the reality is, is that as we go forward, some of all of that, it's going to be a much more complex way that we fund all of this. I think also a couple of other things that happen in the uh, limitless thing. Personally, in my opinion, I think Baptist faith and message just sort of ensured the personal theological integrity of the individual. But in my opinion, it did not influence the day-to-day workings of missionaries. That's what I think the foundations document has the potential moving forward to say, how are we what what is this gospel that we're working to get out? Uh, what is healthy ecclesiology? Um, and a lot of things that I think will be not not just helpful for the growth, but for the 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 theological biblical integrity of the people that we're we're supporting out there, making sure that we're really all pulling in the same direction. Yeah, it it really brings a lot of clarification to definitions and continuity to understanding of those terms and and definitions around the world. But like you said, the funding source, there's really nothing new under the sun. We have used a variety of ways to fund missions in the past. And I remember doing some research, looking at some of those uh, and we're really learning from our past and uh, improving on those and moving forward. But David, we're we're almost out of time again, and that takes us to number 10. What is that 10th turning point? You know, I, I think the 10th turning point is kind of just where we are. I mean, we have a new president, Dr. Chitwood, um, and I, I think the question is, there, there are a number of challenges. And I, uh, you know, I like what I see in, in Dr. Chitwood, namely that what we've got to do is we've got to get Southern Baptist churches uh, fully on board, engaged. And yeah, I mean, we've got so many great mega churches. That's great. I pastor a, a, a small membership congregation. I think we need every size. We really need to sort of uh, get back to that sense of that we're all on board. This is our, uh, this is a, a way that our church and, and cooperates with other churches to fulfill, to carry out what Christ has commanded us to do. Maybe that one sacred effort that was there at the founding. Maybe that one sacred effort. That's it. Well said. And I think that, um, you know, there's, there, there are challenges. And I think this began to be addressed uh, in the limitless f- phase, which is also you, you can't just keep reaching uh, unreached people groups because you get smaller and smaller segments of people. So you're trying to reach 500 people. We, we live in a world that urbanization is just, it has been a reality and it's going to continue to be. We've got these mega cities uh, that, uh, that are just populations that are mind boggling. We've got to have strategies for that. I think the other thing though, that as we move forward is we cannot see ourselves as an isolated missionary uh, sending agency. We've now We've gone to Brazil. We've 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 worked in 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 other countries around the world. Nigeria. We talked with, with a brother there. How do we partner with other Baptists? These these are people that that theologically and 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 uh, structurally are similar to us. We're in the f- same foundation. How do we have sort of uh, partnerships with people like that to accomplish the Great Commission? We can't just 
uh, continue to see ourselves um, as, hey, we're going to do what we're going to do. And continuing sort of mobilizing people from the Americas that are culturally even a little nearer to some uh, of the context in the Middle East, et cetera. How do we mobilize our brothers and sisters in that missionary? Well, and, you know, Avery Willis in 1995 uh, went to South Korea at Jokowi and apologized for uh, Southern Baptist missions efforts and thinking that we could do it by ourselves. There was a recognition as early as 95, and I think even before that, but that we can't go this alone. And so we talked about the union movement. It's not getting rid of all distinctives and joining together, but there's partnership with our brothers and sisters in Christ from uh, around the world, different countries, different people groups. There's partnership with other evangelicals within parameters. We partner with some organizations on one level, but not on another. And recognition that the the Great Commission task is given to all believers everywhere, and it's given to each believer. Yeah, that's a, that's a great word. And so, um, you know, as we, we come to this, I think we're standing on the threshold. We It's sort of like we're looking and there's sort of fog in front of us. We don't know what all, I, I think though, God has prepared us. We're on the eve of 175 years. Um, and I, I, I don't think that this Southern Baptist missionary effort is over. No. I think it's just beginning and some it, it just great days lie ahead and things that we've not even imagined and fruitfulness that we've not even conceived of. And I believe God has raised up uh, and will continue to raise up leaders to go to the nations. And um, so for from where I sit, I'm just, I'm very encouraged about uh, the possibilities of how God will continue to work through Southern Baptists and our cooperative mission effort known as the International Mission Board. And that's one reason to celebrate the 175th and why we have the Missions History Podcast is so that we can learn from the past to inspire the future. That's right. Absolutely. And uh, Scott, would you mind as uh, we close, I'd like to say a prayer for, Please for our Southern Baptist uh, denomination. Father, as we have looked at uh, these 174 years, as we're on the eve of this very special anniversary in 2020, Lord, we we thank you for all that has been accomplished. We think back to those early days, Lord. We thank you for people like James Taylor, Lord, who who led our organization in those early days. We think of missionaries like um, our African-American brother, John Day, who was a pioneer in Liberia. We think about people like Matthew Yates, Lord, who served in China. Lord, we we think about um, the women that have served so faithfully, married and single, and those that are supporters here in America. Lord, we thank you for the many ways that people have served, the many platforms that they've used in our one common effort, which is making disciples of Jesus Christ. Lord, we we are sorry, Lord, for the ways that we failed you. We're sorry, Lord, that we have um, been distracted so often by lesser things. But Lord, we pray that um, as we continue to grow in knowing you, that we would continue to grow in our obedience and in making you known. And so, Lord, I pray that you would unite Southern Baptist in this one sacred effort that, Lord, the next 175, Lord, if the Lord Jesus does not return before that is completed, that the next 175 would not be a diminishment 
of this missionary effort, but would be an increase, not just to be involved in effort, but because, Lord, you have said that how can they hear unless someone preaches, and how can they preach unless they are sent? And so, Lord, we want to send evangelists, those that would proclaim the good tidings of Jesus Christ to lost men and women and boys and girls everywhere in every language on this earth, because, Lord, we already have seen the end. You have been gracious to show us that the great multitude that no man can number gathered around the throne from every nation, tribe, and tongue uh, and proclaiming that salvation belongs to you and to the Lamb. And so help us to press into that future, press into uh, what you have called us to do. And so, Lord, thank you for um, for every missionary, be with them. I pray that you'd be with the churches. May we not become inward in our focus, but we may we always have a desire to reach those that, as Scott says, that are across the street and are around the world. And we pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us on Missions History Podcast. I'm David Brady. And I'm Scott Peterson. Till next time. Thank you for listening to the Missions History Podcast. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. And check out more great content like this at imb.org.